city streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. In 1979, Kenneth Bianchi was arrested and charged with a dozen murders of young women in California. Bianchi managed to persuade several respected experts, while under hypnosis, that he had an unpleasant alter ego named Steve. He said it was this Steve that had committed the horrendous crimes he was being charged for. Now, this had a lot of implications. If the expert's diagnosis of multiple personality disorder was allowed to stand, Bianchi would be able to plead not guilty by reason of insanity and would be unable to give evidence against his co-accused, Angelo Buono. But investigators were skeptical, so they brought in yet another psychologist, Martin Orne, who was an expert in hypnosis. Told by Orne that MPD, or multiple personality disorder, patients usually had at least three personalities, Bianchi promptly invented another one, whom he called Billy. Bianchi exaggerated his confusion at seeing the evidence of actions committed by Steve, such as the removal of filter tips from cigarettes during a previous hypnotic interview. Interestingly, a police search of Bianchi's house turned up textbooks on psychology, behavioral science, hypnosis, and police procedural law. He had also viewed the movies Sybil and Three Faces of Eve, both movies that were very popular and dealt with multiple personality disorder. As it turns out, Bianchi had taken the name of his alternate personality, Steve Walker, from that of a psychology student whose identity he had faked earlier in order to obtain accreditation. While Orne and the police were never fooled, several experts had been. Sentence and Bianchi, the judge said, in this, Mr. Bianchi was unwittingly aided and abetted by most of the psychiatrists who naively swallowed Mr. Bianchi's story, hook, line, and sinker. Welcome to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, a forensic psychologist, private investigator, and your host for today's show on malingering. I am delighted to welcome today's guest, Dr. Barry Rosenfeld. Dr. Rosenfeld is a professor at Fordham University where he teaches in both the psychology and law departments. He is board certified in forensic psychology, conducts research related to torture and the mental health of refugees and asylum seekers, has served as an international human rights consultant and expert witness in several high domestic cases. He's going to help us answer some questions about faking mental illness or what we psychologists call malingering. Welcome to the show, Barry. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Barry, how would you define malingering? Most of our field defines malingering as deliberately exaggerating or feigning symptoms for some kind of what we would call secondary gain. That secondary gain, that's a pretty broad term, so that can be anything ranging from money or drugs or avoiding some kind of duty like military service to avoiding prosecution for serious criminal charges. But there's got to be something external that the person wants by pretending to have some kind of symptoms. So how common is it? Yeah, that's a challenging question. One of the things I tell my graduate students on usually the first day of class is that the answer to almost all difficult questions is it depends. The higher the stakes go up, the more common malingering is. 
I virtually never see anybody who's malingering mental illness when they've been arrested for jumping the turnstiles on New York City subway or shoplifting a $5 item from a convenience store. On the other hand, you have a triple homicide charge, the chances of malingering are pretty high. If you're involved in a, a serious civil lawsuit where there's millions of dollars at stake, there's a pretty significant incentive to malinger. So, you know, best estimates are anywhere from two or three percent to 30 or 40 percent, depending on the circumstances. So it sounds like the circumstances really do play a role. I mean, it would seem like, for example, if you're facing the death penalty, there would be a huge incentive. Absolutely. I mean, I think the circumstances are entirely the point of malingering, that you're doing it for some external circumstances. That's one of the mistakes that people often make in thinking about malingering is thinking that it's some kind of a personality characteristic, that there are certain people who are just prone to malinger. Now, Barry, what about personality? I mean, are there certain personality disorders, for example, that might tip the scales in terms of someone being tempted to malinger? I guess I would say not really. I mean, there's a small increase in malingering in people who have an antisocial or psychopathic personality disorder, but not really. I think that the point of thinking about malingering as something externally driven is that any of us can be motivated under the right circumstances to malinger. So you really think it's more of a situational, social issue driven? Yeah. I think many people who we would think of as honest, law-abiding citizens are motivated to exaggerate a little bit if, you know, they think they're going to get more from an insurance company, for example. So what are the most commonly faked illnesses in your experience? Well, you know, my experience is primarily in traditional mental health. But I think actually, if you look at the research data, I would probably say that it's in things like car accidents, where people fake medical symptoms, they fake brain injury, mild cognitive impairment. You know, if you've had a small fender bender and you're not likely to get much beyond your car fix, but you show up in court with a neck brace, then, you know, suddenly you might go home with some money. And and that's just another form of lingering. I work primarily in mental health settings. So I see people who are exaggerating PTSD, depression, sometimes psychosis. And again, that really depends on the circumstances. So what are the most common circumstances that you run across? Well, I guess there's, you know, I work in in primarily two different areas. I mean, I work in several, but two different areas. So in the criminal justice system, it's serious criminal charges. By the way, serious is in in the eye of the beholder, too. If you're a, you know, kind of a a upper middle class, well-educated person with a white collar charge, you know, I actually remember a a very, very high power attorney who was head of a big firm who was blatantly exaggerating symptoms to get out of a tax fraud case. But, you know, the, the risk of jail or the fear of jail for somebody like that is tremendous. Whereas, you know, I see somebody else who, you know, the thought of going to jail for a couple of years, no big deal, drop in the bucket, they're perfectly happy to do that. The circumstances that might drive that, and and conversely, you know, for somebody like me, somebody like you, the possibility of lying on the witness stand for an extra $20,000, $30,000 in an insurance settlement is hardly a motivation. But for somebody who's from really, you know, kind of uh, down and out on their luck, that $10,000, $20,000 can be a huge amount of money, and they'll be happy to exaggerate their symptoms and and lie under oath for it. So would it be fair to say, in your opinion, Barry, that when people malinger, it's typically either to get money or to avoid some kind of negative consequence? 
Yeah, I think that's the broadest definition. I mean, there certainly are lots of other scenarios. You know, my colleagues who work in, a, in prisons and jails, they'll see people malinger to get transferred to the psych ward instead of having to stay in general population. If you're an emergency room doctor, you'll see people coming in and malingering to get a prescription for opiates or Xanax because, you know, you, you want to get high. But in kind of what most psychologists encounter, we primarily see people in either civil lawsuits where it's about money or in the criminal justice system where it's about avoiding or minimizing the punishment you might get. Now, what about the reverse? So you have somebody who is perhaps very mentally ill who is pretending that they're not. Well, so we wouldn't call it malingering. It's the opposite. It's defensiveness. It's another form of what we would call dissimulation, which is just putting forth, you know, a, a false impression. And that certainly happens. If somebody's trying to get out of prison on parole, you don't want the parole board to think you have a mental illness. Or if you're in a courtroom and you're facing a relatively minor charge, you might have a much worse outcome if the judge knows if you have a serious mental illness. They might order you into treatment versus just letting you go. In my work with people who are up for parole, this is something that I encounter quite a bit. I mean, I really have to rely on looking at multiple data sources because I have yet to see somebody, and I'm speaking somewhat broadly, but not that broadly, who when it comes time for parole and they're looking at either going to a psychiatric hospital as part of their parole or a forensic hospital and being released into the community, all of a sudden their symptoms kind of disappear because they're really invested in not doing that. But I'm wondering, is that not, I mean, if you're, Basically, not telling the truth in order to, for some secondary gain, is that not malingering? Or you're just saying it's a different term, even though the outcome is the same? It's a different term. Malingering really is pretending to have symptoms you don't have. Whereas denying symptoms that you genuinely do have, it's really just denial, right? I mean, we have a a, a lot of other fancy words we can use for it, but that's really just denial or defensiveness. They are flip sides of the same coin. They're similar in some ways. We're much better at detecting malingering than we are defensiveness or denial, just because it's a much more well-developed phenomenon. It's much easier to tell when somebody is pretending to have symptoms that are implausible versus denying that they have symptoms. Very hard to know when someone says, no, I don't have that. That doesn't happen. Barry, how do you typically get involved in these cases? I get hired by attorneys generally, sometimes by the court themselves, but typically by attorneys. So in a civil lawsuit, I might get hired to do an evaluation either for, well, typically if, if malingering's already been brought up as an issue, then it's probably because a plaintiff has claimed some kind of severe mental disorder and the defense is trying to question whether they really do have any of those symptoms. In a criminal case, it it can come up on either end. I'll always evaluate malingering in everybody I see, regardless of who hired me, because I want to make sure that I'm not being fooled into saying this person is mentally ill when they're not. And conversely, you know, I don't want to be fooled into saying this person is mentally ill or is not mentally ill when, when they really are. So Barry, give me a specific example, if you can think of one, of what an attorney might call and say to you. Sure. Uh, You know, I had a call very recently in which a defense attorney called me because an expert hired by the prosecution 
had given a couple of tests and had concluded that this defendant was malingering mental illness. And the expert for the defense did not think that the person was malingering, thought the person had, had a genuine mental disorder. And the expert for the defense didn't really have any test data to prove that. It was that person's opinion. But the prosecutor's expert had given a couple of tests and had reached that conclusion. And so they wanted a second opinion, essentially. Is my client really malingering? Or is it possible that genuine mental illness could have led that expert astray? No, at the very beginning, I talked about this Kim Bianchi case, which became somewhat famous and left some egg on the mental health professionals' faces, at least the ones who had, I guess, believed what he had said, because he does later admit to the fact that he was malingering. So this is not a case where we're still wondering whether he really was or he was not. And I'm wondering, in your opinion, what are the most common mistakes that evaluators make that might leave them perhaps to either conclude that somebody's malingering when your opinion is they're not, or the opposite. You know, you have somebody who manufactures these symptoms and people are kind of going, yes, he's clearly malingering or he's clearly got a mental illness. And then you evaluate him and kind of go, or her, and go, no, this person is malingering. What puts us at risk for wrong conclusion? Exactly. Mistakes evaluators, forensic evaluators in particular make that really would, you know, they're obviously maybe not best practices. And they're just pitfalls that if we don't maybe correct for those or do things differently, we're more likely to fall on the wrong side of what's really going on. I'm going to answer that question, but just so we can keep the record clean, the Bianchi case was 40 years ago, and the field has come a very, very long way since then. We really had virtually no, we had very few methods for identifying malingering back in those days. And, you know, I'm getting old enough that when I went to to graduate school and I was trained, we still had very little by way of sophisticated testing techniques. We have a lot now. So, you know, there are a number of reasons why people go awry. And to some extent, that's because we have so many tests. It's very hard for a lot of experts to really keep track of which tests are better and worse under which circumstances. There are some tests that are kind of complicated, so it's hard for some people, some experts, and I'm putting experts in quotes, I guess, here, because I think it really is incumbent on us to know the tests that are out there and to understand them. But there's a lot of experts who are not particularly strong in that area, and they don't really understand what the data that they're relying on really is about. And so they might get a computer printout that says that this might be exaggerated. We use a test called the MMPI, which you're obviously familiar with. And you can get a computer printout from the MMPI that will say, this is an invalid profile. And then it'll give a couple of boilerplate statements that imply that the person may have exaggerated their symptom. And that's a test that, you know, where that threshold is, is a very equivocal one. So you will get people who are genuinely mentally ill that fall above that threshold and the test says they're faking symptoms. And you'll get people who are below that threshold who are doing a good job of faking symptoms, but the test says, no, this is perfectly valid. Another thing that I run into, I guess more than I would like, is when I see professionals sometimes who are not looking for secondary sources. They're not looking, they're not talking to friends or family members, and they're kind of taking what that person says at face value. So even to me, if you have a test that suggests somebody is malingering, it seems to me that in some respects, it's crucial, if at all possible, to 
look for that history of individuals having a mental illness prior to, if we're talking about a criminal arena, prior to the onset of criminal behavior or this particular charge. Because I do see that still quite a bit where you have an individual who even does psych testing, but they're not looking to see is the person's history, their psychiatric history, their behavioral history, their functional history, really matching up with what they're presenting now or what they're saying now. Yeah, and that, that's certainly an important aspect of the overall evaluation. It's one of the reasons why we're never going to just take a test and say, well, this person got a score of X, and therefore my conclusion is that they have this disorder or they don't have this disorder. But, you know, to go back to your original question about places people go awry besides just not doing a thorough enough job, I'll see people give too many tests. They'll give 12 or 13 tests and each one has a risk of error. And then they'll say, well, look, three of those 13 tests say the person's malingering. Therefore, they must be malingering. When obviously the more tests you give, the higher your risk of a false positive on any one test is going to be. You would think with 13 tests, you'd find something somewhere, right? (laughs) But people should understand that. But you don't always see that. Culture is another big issue, by the way, because, you know, that these tests are typically developed and tested primarily on North Americans, often on college students. And so my student and I actually just published a paper where we showed much higher rates of error on a fairly common test in Latin American countries. And there was a direct relationship between the educational and kind of development level of the countries. You know, the less developed, the greater the risk of error. So once we get away from kind of mainstream Western culture, our tests that we rely on pretty heavily can get much more tenuous. And a lot of people don't recognize that. They'll just translate a test on the fly and say, uh, this is the score. One of the things I want to talk about when we come back after our break in a few minutes, I do want to kind of delve into the actual how you evaluate somebody from malingering. But I think it might be important to distinguish between People who are maybe not telling the truth or feigning symptoms because there's some external gain like getting money or avoiding jail time or whatever, and people who are feigning symptoms for more internal reasons. And so maybe you can help us understand the difference there. So somebody, for example, who has Munchausen syndrome or somebody has a factitious disorder, help us understand the difference there. Yeah. So a factitious disorder, Munchausen syndrome being an example of it, that's basically not identifying any external gain, right? We think the person is exaggerating symptoms, but they're doing it because they want people to perceive them as sick. They want to be taken care of. They want some kind of an internal gain. They want attention. Where that gets murky is when, you know, we're working in an area where there is an external gain. How in the world can we determine that that wasn't a motivator? Sometimes you'll see a long history of this symptom presentation. And that seems to be the driving force. Or sometimes you'll see, I actually remember a case many, many years ago now, right? And think about how long ago, but of somebody who was ostensibly paralyzed in a wheelchair, paralyzed for several years following an automobile accident, had seen all these doctors. The doctors kept saying, there's nothing wrong with you. You should be able to walk. We can't figure this out. This is somebody who was in his mid-30s, had a young child. The wife was basically taking care of him because he was essentially a a paraplegic, wheelchair-bound, and couldn't get out of the wheelchair. You know, everybody thought it was driven by a desire for some kind of a secondary gain. He wanted the insurance benefits, but there was no evidence that he wasn't genuinely wheelchair-bound. 
And actually, under a sodium amytal interview, so essentially a medication that's kind of like being really drunk, on videotape, he got up and walked out of the chair. When we showed him the videotape, he started sobbing and saying, how did you fake that? Why would you do that to me? And, and you know, watching his wife, his wife who had been taking care of this guy for years, was devastated watching this. That's an example of somebody who seemed to clearly have what back in the Freudian days we would have called a conversion disorder. But it's pretty rare. I mean, I've seen a handful of those cases in, in 25 years. Normally, when somebody's in the criminal justice system, there's just no way to say in many cases that it's not the external gain. And so, you know, we might not know what the external gain is, but it's typically going to be driven by something tangible. I can think of a situation, I've done some work in Munchausen by proxy, and that's certainly a situation where things can become very blurred. Now, of course, it's a little bit different because oftentimes in these situations, it's a parent who's kind of lying or faking symptoms in a child. But I will see sometimes cases where there's the whole attention seeking, the martyr mom who's got this sick child and she's getting a lot of praise and attention from doctors. And at the same time, they're getting taken on Make-A-Wish Foundation trips. They're being given a Habitat for Humanity house. They're getting donations for these certain illnesses. And I think it can become very blurry. And I think there are situations where maybe it's not either or, or it's both. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's sometimes very hard to know what that external gain is. And so, you know, we, we might be a little too quick at times to say, well, no, I think it's internally driven just because we haven't been able to figure out or we don't think that the external gain is sufficient. But, you know, as you said, that, that Make-A-Wish Foundation trip, that can be a big reward for somebody. And there's certainly other tangible rewards from having that sick role and having people around to take care of you or to help you or to feel badly for you. You know, expectations for work and the kinds of things that you need to provide in other settings can all be essentially put on hold. It's hard to know what that external gain is, but again, you know, we do know that it happens. It's just, it's a far less common phenomenon than malingering for some tangible benefit. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'd love to start talking a little bit about the specifics of how we do evaluate as forensic psychologists, these kind of cases, how complicated they are and the tools that help us sort these through. You are listening to Dr. Joni Johnston and Dr. Barry Rosenfeld on A Thread of Evidence. Our show today is on malingering. We'll be back in just a moment. Spreading the out loud truth from sea to shine and sea. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. The goal is to deliver a message of truth inspiration, and hope to the world, to unite people from all backgrounds and beliefs in an effort to advance humanity. We are the vision of the voices. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. 
That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police at Amazon.com. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. Our esteemed guest today is Dr. Barry Rosenfeld, who is an expert on many things, including malingering. So we've been talking about some really interesting questions such as, is it possible to fake a mental illness? Why would anybody fake a mental illness? And we've talked a little bit about kind of the big picture, but Barry, I really want to get into some cases. So tell me about, or tell us about your most fascinating case. There's been a lot of really fascinating cases. And I know you started out with Bianchi. In New York, we like to talk about Vinny the Chin Giganti, but I didn't evaluate him. My colleagues did. So I'll leave that for another day. Some of the cases that I like the best are the ones where it's really unequivocal. Because, you know, it's, it's one of the challenges with malingering is being confident that the person really is malingering. So I like cases where I have that hard evidence. And, and I think some of those cases that involve insurance disability have been really interesting to me. Insurance disability, I'm not sure, Tony, if you do these kinds of cases, but, you know, when somebody is or claims to be too mentally ill or too physically ill to work, we can collect disability insurance. And sometimes that can be a pretty good sum of money. And one of my favorite cases was a guy who was collecting disability due to severe, severe depression, couldn't possibly function. And one of the things the insurance companies do when somebody's on disability for too long is they'll bring in an expert to evaluate whether it's genuine or not. And and they'll also often ask the person to record their behaviors, you know, maybe for a, a particular week. So, you know, for next week, you're, uh, Joni, going to write down everything you did every day. So this client comes in, this person I'm evaluating, he's not my client, the insurance company is, but this man I'm evaluating comes in and, and I'm looking at his week and basically his week says, you know, got up at 10 o'clock, watched a few minutes of TV, tried to eat something, went back to bed. Basically, his whole week was spent kind of mulling around his apartment, couldn't get himself dressed or out of bed or functional. That's how severely depressed he was. He comes in, he does some testing. The testing looks highly suspicious and, you know, I won't get into a whole lot of detail, but it, it could have been a plausible severe depression, except that the insurance company had also sent a private detective to follow him around for the week. And every morning that he said he was lying in bed and watching TV for a few minutes, he was going to one of these Schwab brokerage houses, holding open the Wall Street Journal and making trades all day all of which was captured on videotape. So I was impressed that he was able to do that, you know, with such a severe depression. But it, it's nice to have that, you know, kind of being a little facetious, obviously, that really concrete evidence that the person is, is being so, so disingenuous about what they're able to do. We don't usually get that kind of clarity. I think the clarity, if there is any clarity, and I would agree that it's not that clear cut, but I work primarily in the criminal arena. And one of the biggest clues that I see sometimes is what the person is reporting to me and what I'm observing. So, for example, I've seen an individual who is saying, for example, that they have schizophrenia and they're hearing voices and the voices are all day, every day. They never leave them alone. They're hearing them now in the interview with me and they'll tell me what they're saying. Oftentimes, they're telling them to do stuff, which they're kind of fighting against. And yet, the presentation in the interview, I don't see any evidence of that. I mean, I think all of us would agree, and and certainly there's some evidence research-wise to support that when people are hearing voices constantly, it's very distracting. 
it's difficult to concentrate on things. They're oftentimes talking back. I mean, there's some things that we would expect to see if somebody is hearing voices constantly and they're shouting in their head or whatever. And so I think, you know, I see some, I guess, behavioral indicators sometimes that maybe what this person is telling me they are experiencing. And yet what I would expect to see if they were experiencing this is dramatically different. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a big red flag when we're, we're given a presentation that seems implausible, given what the person's reporting. You know, one of the ways that, that we'll evaluate malingering, and particularly back in the old days, before we had all these handy tests that we could use, you know, we would do things that are similar to what you described in the Bianchi case, which is kind of throw out symptoms that people don't really have. So, you know, I might ask the person, hey, does it, has it, in the course of this interview, has it looked like my shirt has changed colors? What color does it look to you now? Has it always been blue? And yeah, it's not a symptom that people genuinely have. And so, you know, sometimes fishing for some symptoms like that, you know, it's not uncommon for me to turn to someone and say, well, so the visions that you see, do you see anybody in the room with you right now? How often have you seen somebody who is feigning schizophrenia? Well, you know, there's a rub to that question, which is there certainly are people who are feigning psychotic symptoms, but most people who fake don't do a very good job of doing their homework. So they're just generically endorsing symptoms and, and they say they're hearing voices and they say that they're seeing things and they, they may report some paranoia, but it's not really clear that they're trying to fake a particular kind of diagnosis. But it's, it's not uncommon to see people in the criminal justice system who think that feigning a serious mental illness, you know, some kind of a psychosis is a good idea. I've heard people say, I heard the voices that told me that I should put the body behind the dumpster or that I should rob the grocery store. And that's not a plausible kind of a hallucination or delusion that the person would have is that someone directing them like that. Which I think is such a good point because our job as forensic psychologists is not, not only to evaluate that person, but we have to understand what is typical and what is most likely in terms of those actual symptoms. So like you're saying, when you talk about auditory hallucinations, we know that most people who experience genuine auditory hallucinations tend to experience them intermittently as opposed to constantly. Not everybody typically responds to every command to hallucinations. We have to have that kind of baseline of what is most likely, from a research standpoint and a clinical standpoint, to be that presentation. And then we can kind of weigh how this person is presenting him or herself against that kind of baseline. Yeah, and, and you know, that's what makes evaluating those kinds of claims in, in some ways the easy, the, the, the low-hanging fruit, the easy ones. It's hard to really successfully feign psychosis, and it doesn't just pop up in someone, you know, I remember seeing somebody who... Uh, was charged with a a child pornography crime and claimed that at age like 53, suddenly these psychotic symptoms had emerged. And, you know, they hadn't been there until midway through the trial, basically. Suddenly the person's basically pretending to be a a kind of a chronic schizophrenic. And that's just implausible. But, But, you know, that's a pretty unusual presentation in my clinical work. I don't do that much work where I see those sorts of presentations, partly because you know, serious criminal charges is the only time when that's going to be really helpful. I'm much more likely to see people feigning depression, anxiety, PTSD, especially when there's money involved and it's not just avoiding criminal punishment. But even criminal punishment, I mean, you don't necessarily want people to think you're too psychotic to be released from the hospital either. 
You want to be just crazy enough that you can get away from your charges, but also then be released. And, and I think if somebody's done their homework, they realize that if they're seen as being really seriously mentally ill, they might be locked up just as long or longer following an insanity defense. That's a very good point. And I think you're right. I think it does become kind of being caught between a rock and a hard place because you're right. If you're facing serious criminal charges and potentially long prison time, there might be a very clear external motivator to be as psychotic as possible, particularly around the time of the crime. And I think that's a very important point that you make is that command hallucinations do sometimes tell somebody to do something, but typically they don't only tell the person to do some criminal behavior, especially a specific criminal behavior, you know, or how to get away with it or those kind of things, I think is certainly kind of a red flag when we're looking at malingering. I do sometimes though see um, Barry in a prison setting, and these are mainly individuals who are hoping to get SSI when they leave. Yeah. The external gain has changed. They're now thinking they're going to get out of prison, but they're looking to get some disability benefits. And sometimes those are legitimate benefits that they probably need to get to function. But other times I think they've kind of learned the system inside the correctional facility, and now they're seeing getting these benefits as a potential you know, way to sustain a living on the outside. And I do see sometimes individuals who will try to manufacture these psychotic symptoms. And some of them are relatively sophisticated, I think, because they've been in the mental health system in prison and they've been in the crisis unit. Maybe they've been a DSH, which is a forensic hospital, and they've gained some information about how to do that. Yeah, and that's, that's a big bonus for somebody who's trying to fake is, to know, is knowing what the genuine symptoms look like. If you've managed to get yourself into a psychiatric hospital, even if you don't have the symptoms, you've seen other people with them. You know how they behave. It's not always that easy to fake some kinds of symptoms. It's very hard to fake mania in my experience. We just don't have the, the energy and the hyperdrive that we can go into to try to pretend to be manic. But it's not at all hard to say you're hearing voices or that you, you know, to talk about some bizarre beliefs. And, you know, you can do a much more sophisticated job of it when you have that background. So I'm coming into your office. I'm coming in, let's say that my attorney or maybe the prosecutor is saying, I think this person is malingering. The defense is considering an insanity plea. Tell me what you're going to do. Well, I'm not going to tell you the specific test for a couple reasons. One is that I don't want anybody listening to the podcast to go out and start studying up on those tests. But the real reason is that I won't make that decision until you're sitting in front of me. In my office, I have piles of tests, and I want to know what kinds of symptoms you're presenting so that I can use tests that'll target those kinds of symptoms. If you're telling me that you're having memory and concentration problems, I have tests that'll help determine if those are valid symptoms. If you're telling me about more psychotic symptoms like voices or visual hallucinations or paranoid beliefs, I've got some tests that'll help identify those. I'm also going to base that partly on how much time do we have? What are my constraints? Can you read and write? Can I give you a written test? So, I mean, I've got literally dozens and dozens of tests sitting in my office, and I'll pull out a handful that I think are going to be the best under any particular circumstance. And some of those will be diagnostic tests, because if you are being genuine, I'd like to get something out of it besides you know, affirmation that you're being honest with me. I'd like some additional guidance. And as you mentioned earlier, sometimes people are actually motivated to minimize their symptoms. So I might want to be watchful for that. But I'm going to pull out a handful of tests, two or three, maybe four, 
that I think are going to target the symptoms that are most viable given your presentation. And I certainly agree. I'm not asking you to say, let's go through all the different tests that we could use to evaluate malingering and then show exactly how we would do that. But I think what I was looking for is what information or what questions are you going to ask me about in my symptom presentation, about my background, about my history, that would be, I guess, a launching pad for you to make those some decisions about diagnostic tests. Sure. So, I mean, I'm always going to start with the history and at least get some background information from you. I want to know how your functioning was before these symptoms came to be and what the history of, of your problems are. When did you first start to have symptoms? How did they come on? What kinds of treatment have you sought for it? Has any of that treatment been effective? And the answer to those questions will tell me a lot about, is this even a plausible course of illness? You know, I mentioned that, that example of somebody who at 50-something had started to come up with psychotic symptoms. Well, you know, we know that an illness like schizophrenia, that's typically going to come on sometime in the late teens, early 20s. And schizophrenia has a particular pattern to it. I want to know from your history what that's looked like so that I can start to rule in or rule out diagnoses and then start to think about, well, okay, now are there tests that will help me to determine whether those particular symptoms are plausible? So that history is always going to be a part of it. I'm certainly going to make some observations and do my mental status exam, ask you about specific symptoms, not just are you hearing voices and, and, you know, is there anybody out there that's out to get you, but, you know, what's your mood like? How's your sleep? How's your appetite? All of these, as you know, are going to go towards different kinds of disorders. And that's also going to allow me then to map on when I use some kind of a more objective test to map on whether your report is consistent with what the test data should look like or what your histories look like. If you're telling me that you've been hearing voices for the last five years, and yet, you know, I think I gave you this example of, of somebody who was working in a high-powered law firm as a lawyer, I don't think you're going to be able to function like that if you're actually having auditory hallucinations on a regular basis. I'm hard-pressed to believe that you can have a meeting at a law firm as the leader of the meeting, and you can, and nobody around you has noticed that there's anything going on with you. That kind of functional impairment that should match the symptoms, that's kind of the disconnect that you mentioned earlier when we start to try to map on the person's presentation with what they're telling us. Absolutely. And the other thing, and again, I tend to work with people in a captive environment. I am luckily able to talk to custody officers or mental health professionals who see that individual And I also think that it's difficult, even if somebody does reading on certain symptom presentation and they're relatively bright and they're trying to kind of figure out how to work the system in some way to get some kind of secondary gain. I find it so beneficial to talk to these individuals because even if somebody's prepared enough to try to be a certain way in an interview with me, two things help me. One is seeing that person over more than one occasion and looking for consistencies and inconsistencies in what they tell me as well as in self-presentation, but also it's difficult to fake certain mental illnesses over time. 24 hours a day, it's really difficult to do that. It is. That's a great observation. I certainly that seeing somebody more than once is very helpful. I'm always cautious about relying on, for example, you know, correction officers' observations because, first of all, they might not be particularly savvy to what mental illness looks like. And they may not be motivated to document when the person's behaved in a way that's bizarre. So the absence of that data doesn't necessarily rule out that the person is genuinely impaired. But I certainly want to know what that is. And I certainly want to take that into account. 
I want to understand, is this plausible? Are these symptoms that this person's reporting, could they be missed or would they be obvious? And I think that comes back to needing multiple data points for sure in any evaluation. So you're absolutely right. I can't imagine relying on one person, you know, certainly not the person I'm evaluating, but even one person outside of that person's you know, whether it's custody officer, a mental health professional, family member, friend, it's kind of part of this big puzzle we're trying to figure out as we go through this evaluation. Yeah, but you know, it is obviously if there are, if the person's on a mental health unit in a jail in a, or in a, in a prison or in a forensic hospital, I'm going to be much more confident than in the, the psychologist or the psychiatrist's observations of that person on a day-to-day basis than the mental health worker or the corrections officer, just because they're trained to look for those symptoms. And, you know, that said, I have seen clinicians in that context write off what I believe to be genuine symptoms as malingering because they were unusual symptom presentations. And you asked about risks of wrong conclusions earlier. One of the risks is when someone's presentation is genuinely atypical. We're very used to what we think schizophrenia should look like or what we think depression should look like. And people can sometimes have genuine mental illnesses that are atypical and that don't fit the pattern that we're expecting. I always caution the students that I train to be extremely careful about labeling someone as malingering because that error is a really, really problematic error. That is so true. And I think that many clinicians, they want to rule out a lot of other things before they end up with malingering, because I do think that that label does follow that person for a long time and can have some really adverse implications for that individual, not just in the immediate term, but in the long term. Absolutely. And I hope that's true, that clinicians are reluctant to throw those labels around. I do see clinicians sometimes throw those labels around a little too quickly and not really seem cognizant of how damaging that can be. I mean, if you call somebody malingering and they're genuinely mentally ill, you're doing irreparable harm. I mean, they're, they're losing the benefits they need to survive in the street. They're being prosecuted for a charge that they have no chance of defending themselves against because they're really incompetent to stand trial. You know, if I miss somebody who really was malingering, there are ways for the system to fix that. Let me throw a little wrench in here, or at least add a little complexity, because I see so many men and women who are substance abusers and chronic substance abusers. And I think that becomes another challenge when you're looking at malingering, because I think when you have a mental illness, or even if you don't, and you have somebody who's been heavily using substances for years, especially like methamphetamines and cocaine, they develop symptoms that really don't follow the typical pattern oftentimes of the major mental illnesses. And yet those can be genuine symptoms. And so I don't know if you have much experience with that, but just wanted to know how you sort through those kind of issues. No, I think that's a great example of when we see or when we might be likely to see a typical presentation. Depending on the substance that the person's using, you know, I saw somebody recently who engaged in really off-the-wall behavior that turned into a homicide, but really off-the-wall behavior using this synthetic marijuana they call K2, and, you know, that can make people just completely psychotic while they're on it, and it can last for a little while, so you might even have residual symptoms a week later, a few days later. And there was a lot of evidence that this person had been brought to the hospital numerous times because they were paranoid, they were behaving really bizarrely at home. And then after a few weeks of bouncing back and forth from, you know, 48-hour hospitalizations, this homicide occurred. 
It looked to one evaluator like the person was malingering. That can be a lack of familiarity. Yeah, everyone can't be an expert on every drug and what and, and what the effects of every drug are going to be. But being open to the possibility that there could be a genuine explanation for an unusual symptom presentation, at least considering that, I think is critical. Absolutely. And we both know, and hopefully we're all taught this as clinicians early on in our training, that there are physical illnesses that can mimic psychiatric illnesses. And those are things that we have to take into consideration also in looking at a differential between an atypical symptom presentation versus malingering versus some kind of chronic or acute medical problem. Yeah, and that's something that's often missed even by physicians who, you know, we'd like to think are more qualified to identify those medical problems. So let's take another break. When we come back, we'll finish up our very interesting discussion. I'd love to hear about some more cases. And we'll talk about also, I want to throw out another topic, and that is when it's not an either or, it's not the person is mentally ill versus malingering, but when you have a mentally ill person who also malingers. So stay tuned. It's Dr. Joni Johnston. I'm talking with Dr. Barry Rosenfeld. Our topic today is malingering which basically means faking mental illnesses. When does this happen? How often does it happen? How do we as forensic psychologists try to sort through that question? You're listening to, again, to Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. We'll be right back. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Welcome back to Thread of Evidence. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston, your host for today. My guest is Dr. Barry Rosenfeld. Our discussion today is on malingering. There have been a lot of questions, I think, among clinicians as well as the lay public about how easy is it to fake mental illness and why would somebody do that and how do we figure out if they are doing that or not. Right before the break, I just threw out another interesting scenario because so far in our discussion, we've really talked about, is it A or B? Is it the person is malingering or is it the person has some kind of serious mental illness, is experiencing the symptoms that they're presenting? and yet. We also know that there are those probably relatively uncommon, but they do happen cases where a person is mentally ill and yet malingering. And I'll throw out an example that I had years ago, an employment law case where this individual had been in treatment for depression for a number of years, kind of off and on, had a documented diagnosis of major depression, recurrent. And yet this person began engaging in an affair with somebody at the office The husband became suspicious. The husband followed the wife to a hotel room and confronted her later. And she really was just in a panic. And so she said, 
well, this wasn't consensual. I felt like I had to. This person's in a position of power. And so she checked herself into a psychiatric hospital. She was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder, which of course is now dissociative identity disorder. And I evaluated her after she'd been in the hospital. And so she was claiming that, A, this was non-consensual and that this was also an alter ego who was engaged in this relationship. Here you kind of have an interesting scenario, again, where this person has a documented history, and yet now she's claiming something that's completely new. In my evaluation, it became apparent to me that I could find no evidence that this person had any dissociative episodes prior to these events. The dissociation appeared to be specifically and exclusively related to what happened. She did not really want to be involved in this litigation. I think she felt like this was her only way to keep her marriage. I guess I throw that out there because I'm wondering if you have seen situations where you have somebody with some mental illness and yet they're malingering for a different reason. I definitely have seen that many times. And I think there's two scenarios there. One is the person who's, let's say, had a genuine period of maybe it's post-traumatic stress disorder following some terrible event. And they had had it for a period of time. They basically recovered but they're still involved in a lawsuit and they'd like to recover more. So they'd like to continue having those symptoms. It's basically exaggerating how bad the disorder is or in a disability case where they had depression, but they'd like to continue collecting disability, even though they're not really depressed anymore. Those are challenging and in some sense, much more challenging than the person who is faking a whole new disorder, which is I think what you just described, because you're probably not going to be expert in the other disorder the way you very vividly recall what your PTSD was like at its worst a year and a half or three years ago. It's much easier for people to fake something that they're familiar with. But, you know, at the end of the day, any kind of detection of feigning really depends on a couple of things. It depends on the extent to which we have good outside collateral information that we can compare to. And it depends on how badly people overplay their hand. And most detection of malingering, we really rely on people to do not a very good job of exaggerating their symptoms. The good news is most people aren't very good at it. That's where we can end up, in a sense, identifying them. I want to spend the last few minutes talking about, I think, a very, very important issue. That is kind of bringing the responsibility, I think, on us as forensic psychologists to be good evaluators. Because along the lines with what you're talking about, that you have somebody perhaps who genuinely had severe symptoms at some point, and perhaps they're experiencing less symptoms now. I also think that there are things that we can do, errors or mistakes that we can do as clinicians or as evaluators that can lead somebody perhaps erroneously to conclude this person's malingering or at least exaggerating. And I think one of those is if an evaluator brings kind of a skeptical attitude from the very beginning into this evaluation, because I've read reports where it genuinely seemed to me the evaluator was so skeptical at the beginning that the evaluee did perhaps exaggerate symptoms, but not in an attempt to maybe get something secondary, as much as to give the evaluator to believe that he or she really had a mental illness. There's absolutely no doubt that evaluator bias is a big problem and that to some extent, we're much more prone to see what we expect to see. If you are a quote-unquote expert on dissociative identity disorders, you're going to find a lot of people with dissociative identity disorders. If you're an expert on trauma, you're going to see a lot of people with trauma. Some of that's because you ask more questions about it. Some of it's because we've got a bias that we can't fully get away from. On the other hand, I think it's 
not as common in my experience for people to fake symptoms or exaggerate symptoms because of that bias. I mean, I think that at least, you know, it's hard for me to, to conclude that I've seen that when I haven't actually witnessed someone else's evaluation. So it's hard to know whether that really was their motive. There certainly are some cases where someone will try hard to convince you that they really are depressed. But to a certain extent, they're still doing essentially the same thing that malingering looks like. It's just driven by a slightly different motive. Maybe not even really, because they want you to conclude that they have this disorder. Very good point. Now, you alluded to the issue of language and culture and the assessment. And I think that is an extremely important topic. So maybe we can end with that. So tell me just your view about how we should incorporate language and culture into our evaluations of malingering and maybe, I guess, mistakes and best practices, in your opinion. Well, now you've kind of hit on my wheelhouse because this is an area that I do a lot of my research and and I've been really focusing on for about a decade now, trying to improve our assessment, not just of malingering, but in general, our ability to evaluate people in a forensic setting when they speak a different language, when they're from a different culture. And if you go back to some of those questions that I asked, when you asked me, how do we evaluate the person? And I said, you know, we want to get their history. We want to hear kind of what their symptoms have been like. One of the things that I'll do is when someone's from a radically different culture, and I see a fair amount of people like this, I'll ask them, have you encountered other people in your culture that have these symptoms? Have you sought any kind of help for this? Maybe not a medical professional, but maybe a traditional healer. So a lot of when we think about unusual symptoms, those can often be very specific to a particular culture. And and more and more, we've identified culturally specific phenomenon that are common but only common to a certain culture. I always start, if the person's not of a culture that I'm familiar with, by trying to learn a little something about that culture, maybe more than a little something. I need to know something about what are the kinds of experiences people from northern Iraq have or from Somalia have. I want to know what those common symptoms might be if they're out there so I can ask about them. I want to know what the methods of getting treatment might be, because it wouldn't probably be a psychiatric hospital, but it might be a traditional healer who's done certain things. The DSM actually has a really nice section called the Cultural Formulation Interview, and they have a lot of good starting points there. But when we come back to malingering, we've also got to think about to what extent can I trust the test that I'm using? Just because I have an MMPI that I have had translated into Spanish doesn't mean that it's going to be equally valid for everybody from every culture. Spanish isn't a culture to begin with. It's just a language. Somebody who's from rural Guatemala might look very different than somebody who's from the suburbs outside of Madrid. That's really interesting because if we use, which I think many of us do, information or baselines on what are typical symptoms, typical presentations, typical means of getting treatment. It sounds like in a situation where you have a different culture, those kind of go out the window. We have to relearn that baseline to be effective. How well we can do that is going to vary dramatically. There's a lot of wild cards that come into play that we have to start to think about when culture becomes relevant. I would argue culture is always relevant. Absolutely. And you know, as we're talking today, I thought a couple of things as we wrap up. On the one hand, I feel like, gosh, we've made this even more complicated because we're now aware of things like language barriers or culture or tests or norms or those kind of things. But it does, I think, illustrate how far we've come in being better able to incorporate those things and perhaps be better evaluators of malingering. I couldn't agree more. I think the more we know, 
the less we realize we know. That's what makes this work so challenging. There's often a real overconfidence in the naive person who doesn't realize that culture might play a role, that testing might not be as definitive as you were taught in your textbook that it was. There's a lot of uncertainty. And the stakes are high in forensic work. We've got people who, if we're wrong about their violence risk, we're putting people at risk. If we're wrong about their malingering, we're, you know, sending them to prison unjustly or whatever those repercussions are. The stakes are really high. And, you know, I think many people take that very, very seriously. But every now and then I encounter somebody who I think is sort of shockingly underqualified to do the work that they are getting paid to do. And it's upsetting to watch. It is upsetting. We're out of time. I would like to just ask you one last question. And that is, what do you think the audience that's listening today, the takeaway for them should be in terms of just understanding kind of from a layperson's point of view, malingering and kind of where we are? I guess for me, the layperson takeaway is that it's really hard for somebody to fake mental illness. We catch it almost all the time. I have no doubt that I have been fooled in my professional career, but I think it's been very rare. And I would say you'll probably say the same thing, that a really, really clever person might get away with it. But it's remarkably difficult to successfully malinger, and it's getting more difficult all the time. So even though we talk about, you know, how we can be led astray and the errors we might make, the notion that criminals out there are kind of getting away with murder by fooling us the way that Bianchi almost did, and 40 years ago, he still didn't get away with it. It's really, really uncommon, I think, for somebody to successfully malinger and get away with something significant. That's a great segue into my ending today. It reminds me of a proverb my mom used to always say, which was, tell the truth or someone will eventually tell it for you. So it sounds like we are doing a better job at that. And I want to thank you for coming on today and helping us understand the complexities as well as the progress we've made in learning to figure out when somebody and why somebody is faking mental illness. So thank you again for being our guest today. This is Dr. Joni Johnston. My guest again is Dr. Barry Rosenfeld. Our topic today is malingering or faking mental illness. You are listening to Threat of Evidence with America Out Loud. See you next time. 